I was coaching one of my son's teams uh, a few years ago, basketball, the Junior Sons, uh, down at the YMCA. Some of you have been there. I, I've seen some of you there. Um, I've seen some of you throw chairs across the court. And uh, <laughs> anyways, I was coaching, and it, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were an okay team. Uh, the kids were learning, taking steps every week. The fundamentals of basketball, you know, defense, you know, triple threat. You know, you know what triple threat is? You can shoot, you can... I thought you said you knew what triple threat was. <laughs> we got to get back to the fundamentals around here. You can dribble or you can pass, right? Shoot, dribble, pass, triple threat. We were learning triple threat. Our kids were doing a good job learning the basics, the rules, understanding, um, passing the ball. Uh, I, I spent some time in Indiana, and uh, so Hoosiers was one of my favorite movies. So I was teaching them the picket fence. You remember the picket fence? You know, all these kind of things. So we're, we're learning all these things. The, the, the team was okay. The coaching was awesome. And we were, <laughs> we, were, we were working through the fundamentals of basketball. And in the middle of a basketball game, a Saturday, never forget this. We were playing a pretty physical team. And I'm on the court kind of coaching and getting the kids moving in a different direction. And from across the court, a, a father stands up, a dad of one of our kids stands up, and he yells to his son, if he pushes you again, I want you to punch him. <laughs> if, he, if he pushes you again, I want you to punch him. Now, these were second graders. <laughs> and and uh, I, I call the timeout. And uh, it was embarrassing to my kids, but I, I wanted to take a moment to talk to the entire group of parents and kids and say, that is not how you play sports. Uh, yes, we play physical teams. Yes, there are times when uh, anger gets, but we do not punch the opposing team. When you're in second grade, that is not how we want to teach. I mean, maybe if you're the Warriors, maybe if you're the Knicks, but not here in Phoenix, that's not how we, I'm just kidding. But we don't teach basketball that way. And I began to realize that this is a part of our cultural makeup, how we respond when others push us in life. How do you respond when people push you in life? What's, what's your first response when people do something that opposes you, that hurts you, that causes you a little bit of pain or frustration? Um, sociology talks about this. Anthropology um, studies systems of people, communities of people, the ways that we're wired. And did you know they're finding that we are wired in, in tribal ways, that we tend to move in tribes as humans. It's almost hardwired into us, and we tend to find ourselves um, in groups, and we gravitate toward groups who think like us, who act like us, who respond like us. And this doesn't sound bad, that we move to like-minded people, that we circle ourselves with like-minded people. But what it begins to do is it creates some of this us-versus-them mentality. It creates this sense of, of, of tribal protection against and over other people groups. And we begin to view ourselves as above the others that don't think like us or act like us. It's a part of uh, the human condition that we move into these circles. We begin to act in these ways. 
And so the question, one of the questions is, what is my first response? What is my first response? In the ways that I think, in the ways that I act, when people begin to push at me, when people begin to push at my ideals, my ideas, my thoughts, my behavior, when someone questions me, when there are differences, when there's indifference, what do I do? How do I respond to those kinds of people? Do I punch them when they push me? And punching isn't just a physical thing. It's verbal as well, isn't it? We oftentimes respond verbally when we want to respond physically, when some of us want to respond physically. Now, in this makeup, in this, ways that, this way that we operate, the, the devastating effect of this is that we begin to depersonalize or dehumanize those who aren't in our circle. And social media magnifies this. When I'm not sitting next to someone or across the table, when it's just something that I put out there in some digital world that I never really understand that that's a person behind the screen, I'm able to say something or do something or cast something toward them that really has no ramifications of me. It's a dehumanizing, a depersonalizing of people on the other side. Uh, I, I found this, this great example. H have you ever heard of a spite house? Anybody ever heard of spite houses around, around the world? Anyone? Anybody? A couple people might know what a spite house is. Let me give you an example. Here's a picture of a spite house. Beautiful pink house. Um, this is in Massachusetts. A husband and a wife uh, having some troubles in their marriage, and they decide to get a divorce. And in the divorce proceedings, the husband is required to provide a home for his wife the exact specifications of the home that they've lived in together. It's an interesting uh, requirement of the divorce. And so the husband, fulfilling his obligations, builds her this house, this pink house, in the middle of a salt land, and the water... The only water source is a salt water source, and so when she turns on her faucets, all she has is salt water at her disposal. It's a spite house. He did it just to spite her. What's your first response? When someone hurts you or when someone requires you to do something that you don't want to do on your own. Uh, here's another one in Seattle. I know some of you are from Seattle. Do you guys know the... Do you guys know the pie-shaped home? Some of you from Seattle, have you ever heard of this pie-shaped home? And every now and then it comes on the market. There's a couple different stories behind this. One story is a story of divorce. And um, the husband got the house and the wife got the front yard. And so she built this house on the front yard to remind him that she was still there. Um, an another, another story is that a neighbor, um, they had some uh, some disagreements, one of these neighbors, and so just to spite the owner of the house, the neighbor built the only uh, structure that could be built on this land, and it's pie-shaped. So it begins this wide. It's like five feet wide, but then it opens up to like 13 feet wide in the back. So it's this crazy-looking house in the back. Uh, this spite house in New York, um, this is one of my, my favorite stories uh, so this landowner had about five to seven feet of land, and uh, the, the, the gentleman who owned the land next door to him was going to build these high-rise apartments in those days. And so he made an offer 
to the, to the man who had just this little strip of land, and um, it was offensive to him. The offer was so low, no one would sell land for that low. So the gentleman went ahead with his apartments. He built these, this apartment uh, complex, and just to spite him, this man built this skinny house five feet wide to cover all the windows of the apartment so there would be no sunlight that would enter into his building, a spite house. Now, what's interesting about these stories is if you think about the people who build the homes to spite the others, we often kind of laugh at the stories, like it's, it's interesting that they would, they would do that. It's funny, they got back at them. Think about the money they wasted. And they have to live in this cesspool that they've created themselves. Now, isn't this how life happens? We, we create these little circles around us of people. We depersonalize people on the other side of the line, and we begin to go back and forth with hatred and retaliation to the point that we have to live in the mess that we ourselves have created. I want to tell you a story this morning from the Bible, from the Old Testament. It's a bizarre story. Now, you've, you've heard his name before. Uh, many of you maybe have, have grown up hearing about Samson. You guys remember Samson in the Bible? Samson had long hair and he was strong. Yes, some of you have been to Sunday school and you've, you remember these stories. And Samson, um, some people don't know that Samson was a judge. Um, this is from our, our journal, this picture uh, of Samson. It's not an actual picture. I think someone drew it. But um, this is Judge, Sam's, judge Samson. It's about 1,100 years before Jesus came on the scene. And just to give you a little bit of background before we jump into this crazy story that we find in the Bible, um, Israel had moved into the promised land. So if you think about where present-day Israel is, that's where God's people, the Israelites, had come in. They, out of Egypt, they had wandered in the desert. Now they find themselves in the promised land. The promised land uh, was divided into 12, let's call it states, because that matches what we have, 12 states, 12 areas based on the 12 tribes uh, that had been a part of, of Israel. On the shores of the Mediterranean, the Philistines had begun to come in and take part of Canaan, that strip of land along the Mediterranean that we still fight over to this day, right? Uh, so it's been going on for a couple thousand years. Well, Samson was one of the judges in this area. As a judge, Samson was the leader of the Israelite people. He was like God's chosen man. Now, I want you to, to hear um, some of the things that Samson did. Samson married a Philistine woman. And at one point, he takes a young goat as a present to his wife. Now, I did a wedding last night, and um, there were no young goats uh, as presents brought men Christmas, young goats are not good gifts to bring home uh, to your wives, uh, but he, that, I guess it was part of the culture. So he brings a young goat as a present to his wife. Now listen to this, uh, and some of you will get to read this this week in, in the journal. He said, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her, but her father wouldn't let him in. Now if you just picture how this is all happening, it's an interesting story. Um, anyway, we'll move on. The father says to Samson, I truly thought you must hate her. And it must be because he hasn't been there for a while, but I, I thought you must hate her, her father explained. So I gave her in marriage. Now, a different culture, multiple marriages. So, so I gave her in marriage to your best man. 
things are not going to go well from this point on, as you can imagine. But look, her younger sister's more beautiful than she. Marry her instead. Samson says, this time, I cannot be blamed for everything I am going to do to you Philistines. Now, time out. What have the Philistines done to Samson? This is a a tension with a father-in-law, and Samson escalates this to an entire group of people. Now, I know there's no correlation in our culture today how sometimes we have divisions with tensions with individuals, and we then expand that to an entire group of people. I know that that has no connection to us whatsoever, but apparently Samson thought the best way to get back at his father-in-law was to go against the entire people. So Samson goes out, and he catches 300 foxes. I don't know how that happened, but he caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs, which the foxes couldn't have been happy about this, and fastened a torch to each pair of the tails. I'm telling you, you should read your Bible. There are awesome stories in here. Like, we watch TV and we think, how do people come up with this? And then you, like, read real stories, like, based on a true story. I would love to see this movie. Um, He goes out, he catches 300 foxes, ties them, puts a torch on each pair of tails. He lights the torches, which I'm assuming that makes the foxes run, and he lets the foxes go through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all their grain to the ground. Now, in an agricultural society... In this time, in this place, in the world, grain was money. Samson destroys their well-being. Everything. Just because his father-in-law gave away his wife. (laughs) Who did this, the Philistines demanded. Samson was the reply. So the Philistines go, they get the woman and her father, and they burn them to death. Because you did this, Samson vows, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury, and he killed many of them. Now, do you see what's happening here? Like this circular pattern of they did this, so it gives me the authority to do this, and you did this to me, and so I'm going to do this to you. And it is a cesspool of hatred and revenge. So the Philistines go, and they camp out. And they have come, the scripture tells us, we've come to pay him back for what he did to us. So finally, the Israelites come to Samson and they're like, what have you done? You've created a war. All because of a tension within your family. A family issue has created a war between two groups of people. And here's Samson's reply. I only did to them what they did to me. Now, do you remember this as kids? Your mom, your dad comes in. Tell me what happened. I only did it because he did it first. Or I only did what she did to me. She started it. He was the first one. But it doesn't matter. It creates this circular pattern of hatred, of revenge, of retaliation. 
we, we end up in this, this cesspool. Now, I want you to think, it's a, it's a cesspool of hatred and revenge. I want you to think about water sources, um, water that is still with nothing entering in and nothing exiting out creates a place of death, right? If nothing else, it cre- in the south, it creates mosquito beds, which are not healthy. But, but it's a cesspool. When you have a water, a, a, a body of water, and there's water flowing in and there's water flowing out, there is life to that environment. There is life within that water. It is a life-giving source. And here's where we're going the next two weeks. Forgiveness creates life for us and for those around us. But hatred and revenge creates a protected body of water that sits, it becomes a cesspool. Isn't that a terrible word, cesspool? I'm just going to keep saying it. It's a cesspool of death. When we get into patterns of retaliation and hatred and revenge, it's death. Hatred has the power to enslave us to the very people we consider enemies. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. When we hate others, over time, we become enslaved to the very, we become the slaves to the very people we consider enemies. Do you see how it flips the script? We think by hating them, by seeking revenge, by doing things to hurt other people, we think that we are now at the higher point. But in reality, we're placing ourselves underneath. We become enslaved to the very people we can't stand. Does that make sense? That's what hatred does to us. That's how it begins to eat at our souls and our lives. So Peter, one of the very first Christians, and if you have your journals and if you work through your journal this week, you'll see this, this story again and again, um, this, this passage of Scripture from 1 Peter. He writes this, so don't repay evil for evil. Our first response, if, if you're alive, if you're a human, our natural first response is evil for evil, isn't it? Like, you, you do something evil to me, I'm going to do something evil back to you. And I should do something evil to you. In fact, uh, when I was in Lebanon uh, recently, in the Middle Eastern culture, did you know revenge is expected? And if you don't, if, if, if you don't do something in retaliation to someone who's done to you, you're actually seen as weak. Like they expect it. If we do something, you should do something in return. It's a part of their cultural makeup. And, and Peter steps in and he says, Jesus brings a whole new way to this game of life that we're all playing. So don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, here's here's the instead, pay them back with a blessing. Now, how impossible is this? How impossible is it when someone hurts you, when someone insults you, when someone thinks differently than you, when someone calls you names, when someone says something about your ideals, your beliefs? How impossible is it, is it to pay them back with a blessing? It's almost impossible. And Peter says this is the best way to live. Paul says the same exact thing in Romans. Here's what Paul says in Romans. Never pay back evil for evil, which makes me begin to believe that this phrase was well known in the early Christian world. For early Christians, this phrase, don't pay back evil for evil, became like a mantra to them. Don't pay back evil for evil. A blessing. Don't pay back evil give them a blessing. 
the same thing. A couple quick stories, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. I'll ask you one more question, just kind of to, to nudge at your heart and your mind a little bit. But a couple quick stories. Corey Timboom, many of you know the story of Corey Timboom. Um, she, she was hiding um, some Jewish people in her home in uh, the Nazi-occupied area in which she lived. And when she was discovered, she was sent to a couple concentration camps. Ravensbrück was one of those. And in Ravensbrück, she saw um, her sister die. Horrible things happen. Well, after World War II, uh, after the Allies came in and uh, changed the whole model of, of living, she came back to Germany to preach about God's forgiveness and about this new way to live based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And she tells a story, if, if you've never read or, or seen any of her, um, her messages, I, I'd encourage you just to read. She tells a story of preaching in a church about God's forgiveness and telling people God's forgiveness, when we confess our sins, God takes them and casts them into the deepest ocean, never to be seen again. She preaches this. She even talks about this line that God takes our sins and casts them into, he forgives us, never to be reminded of that again. She's preaching this. And she said German people in this day were, were downcast, and after uh, church after services, people would often just file right out the door and nobody would come down front. She said, this, this day was different. She said, I was preaching, I ended, and just as is normal, all these people began to file out of the service, unaware, not, not sure if what I said has any impact on, on their life, except for one man this day. And she said, I looked up and this one man is coming down the aisle and I see him wearing a suit and smiling. And all of a sudden, I see this same man, I see his face, but I see the Nazi soldier's uniform, and I recognize him as one of the soldiers at the camp I spent my life in. And I was confronted with the question, I preach about forgiveness, I talk about the ways of Jesus, but what do I do when a man who did some of the worst atrocities to any human being that could ever be thought of? What do I do when he stands face to face with me? What do I do in that moment? Um, she says this, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred in our lives. Her telling that story, writing that story is powerful. Martin Luther King Jr., the atrocities, the things done to him and those that he represented. And this was his statement, Martin Luther King Jr., darkness cannot drive out darkness. And our tendency is to, when, when darkness and evil comes at us, our first response is darkness and evil back at those who hurt us. And he says, only light can drive out darkness. Now, how brilliant is that statement? Only light can drive out darkness. Hatred, on the other hand, multiplies hatred. When we respond with evil in those ways, it just multiplies it and our, makes our world a bigger mess 
chaotic hatred multiplied again and again and again. I, I know I'm not that old, but I'm learning more and more that usually pain inflicted on other people is simply pain reflected from one's own life. Oftentimes when we hurt other people, it's just because we've been hurt in some way and we have some things underneath the surface that we don't know how to deal with. And forgiveness is like a garden. And the first thing to do when you, when you begin to set the, 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 the groundwork, the framework for a garden, is to get underneath the surface and make, make sure you have some good soil. And so here, this is where I want to take us today. As, as we enter back into a time of worship, I want to get underneath the surface a little bit and say, is there anything unresolved underneath the surface of your life that causes you to retaliate, that causes you to depersonalize other people, that causes you to return evil for evil in other people's lives? And here's some, here's some little signs. Um, I ask myself this, what, what does it look like when bitterness takes root in my life? I can't celebrate someone else's success when I've got bitterness and hatred in my own heart. Anyone been there? You don't have to raise your hand, but anyone been there? When other people succeed, it's like, why do they succeed? They don't deserve that. I deserve that. I wonder if there's some bitterness and some hatred underneath that surface. We keep a list of mistakes. I call it the list. Anybody have a list? And you're only going to bring it out if you need to, but you've got the list. This happens in marriage. We have this list, this running list. We're prone to burst of anger. When, when hatred and, and, and revenge and bitterness take root in our hearts, we are prone to bursts of anger. And listen, I've, I've been there. My parents divorced when I was a kid. I, like There was so much anger and bitterness within me, and it causes me to act out in anger, like burst out in anger. And every now and then we wonder, where does that come from? Where did that come from? The roots of bitterness and hatred is where it comes from. I mean, we replay scenes. Anybody, have you, have you ever done this? You replay scenes of things that were done to you and you imagine them as worse than they really were? You just take it further and further and further. You think the worst of other people. We avoid people and we avoid conversations. So Jesus... Jesus, our, our Lord, our Savior, the one who sets our direction, he says this, in the world, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Someone does something to you, you should do something in retaliation. This was even in the Israelites' manual for living. Like the punishment, an eye for an eye. Someone takes your eye, we're going to take their eye. That's just how it works. You should hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you have struggles with uh, ongoing bitterness and hatred towards some, certain people, it's not a one-time thing. You're not going to get rid of it this morning. But every time they come to mind, Jesus says, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. And in doing that, you're working the soil of your life. You're turning over the soil of your life. And eventually, that hatred is going to work its way out. In healthy ways, not unhealthy ways, in healthy ways. You're going to get that hatred out so that then there's joy. And there's a groundwork that God can work with. So pray for them. And then he goes on, this last piece, and we're going to close with this. In that way, I love this, in that way, in doing this, you are now acting like children 
of your heavenly Father who freely forgives you for all things. For God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. Now that's a, that's a weird way to end a passage of scripture, isn't it? For, for God gives his sunlight. And he goes on to say he also gives rain to both the evil and the good. Look, look God is good. And God loves all people. All people. And he lets his sun shine on all people. He gives rain to all people. And when we step into the flow of forgiveness, when we receive that forgiveness, when we step into that flow, we begin to reflect that forgiveness, we're beginning to act like our Father in heaven. And we begin to spread love, which is the only world, way this world's gonna ever change. We gotta love. We gotta learn to love. Um, would, you, would you stand with me? And um, I'm gonna say a prayer. We're gonna sing one last song. And as we do this, just feel the freedom to move around the room. There's a cross here. Some of you maybe want to write some things and put it up on the cross as your way of turning that over to God. Some of you might have some bitterness and hatred that, that, that's in there, and you just need to write it down and just give that to God once again. Some, some in this room, you need to forgive yourself as much as you need to forgive anyone else. So maybe you want to write that. There's candles in the back of the room, which represents God's presence. Maybe you want to light a candle. Maybe you want to take communion to be reminded of God's grace and his love in our lives. In the far back of the cave, in the back of the room, um, there'll be some people, if you want someone to pray for you, just slip back there and just say, I need prayer. I need help. I need something. You don't have to tell them a long story. They'll just put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Father God, um, in these moments, we respond to, to you. We respond to your spirit. We respond to the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. God, um, bitterness, hatred takes root in us and it causes us to act in all kinds of unhealthy ways. So I pray that you would help us get underneath the surface today to work the soil, to listen to you and for you. I pray this in Jesus' name.